There are, of course, a lot of angles we could take on a reading like that, but the one that often comes to me when I hear those sorts of words from Jesus is a question, and that is, is Jesus smart? I mean, do you attribute to Jesus, do we attribute to Jesus the same sort of basic intellectual capacity that we assume for ourselves? I mean, I wonder, when I hear words like that, to what was Jesus conscious? I mean, all other rabbis and their followers had things to which they were conscious and to which they were deeply committed. For instance, the Qumran sect were deeply committed to their ideas that, well, the best way to be Jewish is just sort of flee from common life and go out and live in a cave somewhere. And they had their teachers that insisted upon that worldview. Now, when we read them, we think, oh, yeah, they're smart. You know, I mean, like, they're, they're, yeah, they're historical figures. They know what they're doing. We could say the same thing about the Herodians. We could say the same thing about the Zealots. And what I want to help us think about this morning is that we live captive to or at the mercy of or freed by our ideas, the things that we hold sort of intuitively to be true, often subconscious, sometimes pre-conscious, those are the kinds of things that guide us. We might think of them sometimes as like controlling perspectives. And I like to illustrate this, you know, have you heard those dopey stories where there's four guys in a small airplane and there's only three parachutes and the airplane's going to crash? You heard those dopey stories? Okay, so here's one. <laughs> Completely dopey story. This is worse than a dad joke. Okay, you ready? So three guys, four guys in an airplane. There's a young pilot who's like 37 years old, got a bunch of little kids at home. Uh, there's a young boy of about 12. There's a very elderly, retired minister and a guy who I forget exactly, he, 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 like, somehow he worked at the intersection. He, like, networked all the great global banks together somehow, some technological thing way over my head, reputed to be known as, like, the smartest guy in the world. All right, so here goes the story. The plane starts crashing, four guys, only three parachutes. The young pilot goes first. He says, look, you know, I got a wife and a bunch of kids at home. If I die, my wife's going to kill me. So he, you know, really important that I live, so he grabs one of the parachutes and jumps. Well, the smartest guy in the world stands up and says, hey, look, I'm the smartest guy in the world. The whole global banking system requires me. Really important that I live, grabs one of the parachutes and jumps. Well, that just leaves the little kid and the old retired minister. And they look at each other, and the old retired minister says, ah, son, I really feel like I've done everything God called me to do. I, I really feel like I'm, I'm kind of done. You're young. You've got your whole life ahead of you. You take that last parachute and jump. And the little boy looks at the old reverend and says, ah, relax, reverend, the smartest guy in the world just jumped out with my backpack. <laughs> so you see, what you think is going on, what you intuit to be right, is what actually governs behavior. And to people like the Qumran, and to people like the Herodians, to Zealots, to Pharisees, to Sadducees, to various teachers of the law, Jesus said this, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. Now again, just ask yourself, was Jesus smart? Was he aware of reality? Was, was he aware that he had a particular worldview? He had a particular orientation to his father? He had a particular orientation to the Holy Spirit, to what was happening on earth? And he could see the contrast. 
I mean, what do we think that Jesus thought the Father was doing in and through him? What were Jesus' aims? Or think about, did his full and his proclamation, I should say, about the full and final inbreaking of the kingdom or the reign of God, did they point to and correspond to any sort of reality? What about his moral teachings, his works of power? Or do we suppose that he was somehow unaware of his own significance and just sort of drifting through life spouting obscure sayings? I mean, again, just think, what do you suppose was Jesus' sense of mission? Do you suppose he was intentional? Do you suppose he had a sense of vocation, of calling and purpose? And did he understand these things, if he had them, in any sort of coherent or concrete way? If you think about it, Jesus' vocabulary from time to time, the themes that he talked about from time to time, his apparent tone of voice, as we read underneath the text, seems to be different from time to time. The points he's making with any given conversation partner seems different. And so what gave them a center of gravity? What gave them a controlling uh, perspective? And I want to say the thing to which Jesus was most conscious was that he was the revealer of God and of God's kingdom. It's not an accident that his first words in public were all about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Now, my point in saying this on a seminary campus today is both for our own followership of Jesus and to those we'll be helping. And the, the points are simply two, that you won't follow someone unless you think they're smart. You might teach about that person. You might have plaques on your kitchen wall that say things like, I am the bread of life. But that is a very different thing than following somebody. Like, you wouldn't learn violin from somebody who you didn't think knew the first thing about violin. And you wouldn't learn French from somebody unless you had confidence that they knew French. And we will not actually follow Jesus unless we have confidence in him that he knows what he's talking about. And that when he says things like, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other. That that is not some sort of disembodied, mystical, first century religious truism. Ask that question in any boardroom. Ask it in a husband and wife fighting. Ask it in our current civil discourse. Ask it on Twitter if you dare. Ask it when it comes to our world, global, religious, industrial conflicts. Is Jesus smart? Did he know what he was talking about? That the world would be a better place if you could live into the notion that your life in the kingdom of God, you're already safe. What if Psalm 23 isn't religious rhetoric? What if it's David's known life? The Lord is my shepherd. I don't have to live in the tyranny of my wants, which might include securing myself in this moment. So you slap me on my cheek and you're getting slapped on your cheek even harder because that's the way the world works. Jesus be, you know what? Are you feeling me here? That's the way the world works. We live in a country that 98% that of us say we believe in God, and apparently coming, from, well, where I live in Southern California, if you, just, if you just looked at it from the point of view of traffic and the number of times you see a middle finger every day on the freeway, you wouldn't think that 98% of our country actually believes Jesus. 
Like they might believe in him, but they don't actually have any commitment in themselves to actually follow him, to act as if they believe what he said was true. And the second thing I want to say is that Jesus was acting out of a, of a kind of basic, relational, overarching mental model. And, the, and, and, and that without that, that Christian life and ministry really doesn't have any sort of purposeful aim that can unite both our life and acts of ministry to their true end. That life and ministry, without the kind of telos Jesus had, the sense of the Father's fulfillment beginning in him, life and ministry without that, I want to suggest, is too shallow to make the various activities of our lives have coherence. And then without the kind of self-consciousness that Jesus had about the final inbreaking of the completion of the fulfillment of God's will in and through him, without that sort of telos in us, we will have a lot of religious and role-related boredom and apathy and discouragement. In my view, a life without that kind of telos, a ministry without that is, to quote Ecclesiastes, a vanity, a vanity, and a chasing after the wind. Or think of Jesus saying, drink of that water and you will thirst again. But drink of the water that I give you. Be conscious of the things to which I'm conscious. Come follow me, learn to live your life within the kingdom of God, to derive your life from the kingdom, to become an ambassador of the kingdom. Drink of that water and you'll never thirst again. Alistair McIntyre in his book, After Virtue, said, we can't, ask, we can't answer the question, what ought I do, unless we first answer the question of what story am I a part? Because the story of which I'm a part, that which I'm a character in, determines just what counts as character. It determines what counts as virtue. So when Jesus comes into Galilee, preaching for the first time in public, now, you just think about that for a minute. This is why I started with, do you think Jesus was conscious? Like, do you think he was aware these were her first, his first public words? Come on. Well, do you think he would have thought, oh, this is an important moment, and maybe I ought to be clear here? I, do you see what I'm saying? This, this kind of thing so easily just becomes uh, sort of fodder for exegesis. And I'm not putting that down. I, I love exegesis, one of my very favorite things. The key word in that sentence was just. It so easily becomes an exercise maybe in Christology. Or it becomes an exercise in ecclesiology. You know, what's, what's the, how, how do the church and kingdom work together? Those sorts of things. But I want to say Jesus was robustly conscious of this is the moment where me and dad are going public. He, all through the scriptures, he says things like, I only say the things I hear my father saying. So let's apply that to this text. He's going public and saying, look, this is what's real. The gospel, the good news of the arrival of God's kingdom, of this new inbreaking of God, this thing that's been hoped for and anticipated all these years, it's now here. And then secondly, if you have your text in front of you, you see he says it's the gospel of God. Now, this alerts us to something very important. That, 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 of course, the gospel of God is in the genitive case. You know, the genitive meanings to show possession or belonging. So the first thing Jesus says is the gospel is not all about you. It's not all about your need. The gospel isn't first and foremost, in that case, about sin. 
It's the gospel belonging to God. That it's at first and foremost about him and his intention, not our need. The story in which Jesus arises, the story in which we arise, has this as the beginning. God intended to create, including humans. So the story begins in this triune intentionality. And it ends in this lovely New Testament word, telos, completion or fulfillment. God intended something, it's going to be fulfilled. And the good news of God is that it is now coming to its conclusion, Jesus says, in me. You know, if you don't see it that way, you're going to have a, you would have a very hard time asking this question, answering this question. What would have been the meaning of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, if the fall had never occurred? Now, you just go on a retreat for a weekend with that question. Seriously, it would do you a world of good to just think, does the second person of the Trinity have any meaning other than to be like goo gone on our sin? Without the fall, what would have been his meaning? Could you have followed him still, even if you didn't have to come through first the, mechan the, sort of the mechanism of reconciliation to God? Of course our sins are there, and of course they matter. I don't mean to say that at all. I just mean to say we reduce Jesus enormously when we reduce him as sort of this mere mechanism to get to heaven when we die. Dallas Willard used to say that when we do that, when we see Jesus as just simply a source of blood, we turn ourselves into vampire Christians. Where we say, well, Jesus, we'll take a little bit of your blood, but we really don't have, want to have anything to do with you. We don't actually intend to follow you. And so Jesus is saying here that what he was conscious of is that this was all about God and that God was bringing his divine Trinitarian intention to pass. And so then Jesus' first words out of his mouth, first words in public, who, nobody could have predicted this. His first words are, the time is fulfilled. What the heck does that have to do with going to heaven when you die? But what Jesus is conscious of, this is a highly narratival statement. Jesus is conscious of, that when he says the time is fulfilled, it's something like this. Everything previous to me is preliminary. And it's now all being completed in me. From fall to flood to Abraham to patriarchs to judges to kings to prophets to John the Baptist. That's all now preliminary to me. And the time is being fulfilled in that God is now bringing his story to completion. Okay, Jesus, what's it all about? The kingdom of God. The ruling and reigning of God. His sovereign authority. The expression of his person it's sort of like God's on the move again and he's, he's working with humanity and he's in closer proximity to humanity and his movement towards them than he has been since they were banished from the garden. And that this has implications for all aspects of human life. As somebody was just praying a moment ago that as our transformed hearts are constantly enlarged and animated towards the least and the last and the left out. And Jesus says all this is at hand. It's not far away anymore. And you don't have to hide in a cave anymore. And you don't have to think, the Herodians, that you have to just pacify um, upper crust Jews and Romans anymore. And you Herodians, you can put away your swords. It's all good now. It's at hand. 
And that kind of like with Bluetooth or something, with a few simple arrangements, you can plug into this whole new and vast reality of God's kingdom that's here. And then he just just simply says, being smart, now if that's true, and you're living as a Herodian, a Qumran, a, a, a Zealot, a Pharisee, a Sadducee, just sort of a secular Jew, whatever, if you're living that way, based on what I've said, rethink your thinking, repent. Metanoia. You know, noia is the basic Greek cognate for thinking. Meta is a prefix there, means something like again or after. Think again. Have a second thought. Now review all your plans for living based on what I just said. Like, based on what I just said is what it means to be human. It's what it means to be a, a male or female or young or old or different skin tones. That what, what gives all that, um, all that variety, what zips it up into some coherent whole is you're now invited to be the people of my Father's kingdom putting it theologically, the reconstituted people of God. And Jesus just knew that to do that, we had to rethink our thinking. We had to decide, do we think you're smart? And are we willing to let your worldview sort of uh, challenge my worldview and my filters? Am I willing to see the places in my life where I'm, in this great New Testament term, uh, hamartia, missing the mark? So Jesus says, here's what my father's doing. This is what this whole story is about. I've come to be the end of it and to make sure it happens. And he says, if you're living this way, then you need to recognize that. Metanoia and repent and aim your life with the mark. Realign your life with the mark of God's intentionality, which is going to happen through me. And then finally, he says, believe. And believe here, of course, doesn't mean just give mental assent. It means place your confidence in It means act as if you believe it's true. Now, one of the ways we know that is that perhaps Jesus' most famous ethical teachings is the Sermon on the Mount, right? And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there's this little parable that says, if you hear these words of mine, but you don't put them into practice, you're like a foolish person whose house is built on the sand. But if you hear these words of mine, placing your confidence in them, acting as if you believe they're true, then your life is like a house built on the rock. And Jesus knew that I and you and everyone else often did not have ears to hear him. Right, the the several times in the synoptics when Jesus said thus and such to those who have ears to hear, I mean, do you think Jesus meant like, "Um, excuse me, ma'am, could you move your hair so I can see if you have a flap of flesh on the side of your head? Do you think that's what Jesus wondered when he like stood and looked at crowds like this? No. Jesus knew that most people did not have ears to hear him. They had ears to filter and manage him according to their present worldview. Their Herodian, Qumran, Zealot, Republican, Democrat, Independent worldview. They did not have ears to hear him. They did not intend to follow him. They did not attribute to him the kind of native intelligence they attributed to to themselves. They were filtering and managing And this is why Jesus says, what this all comes down to is, come follow me. Uh, The Greek text there actually says, hither, behind me. And that sounds sort of condescending to us, but it wasn't in Jesus' day. When we think of walking with somebody, we think of walking side by side, right? Well, in in Jesus' day, walking, especially with a rabbi, meant that you walked behind them. It, it, It showed that you were an apprentice of that person. And that you are breaking ties with all rival demands for loyalty or for following any, any other sort of leader or master. 
the sort of hither, come behind me now, showed that Jesus was forming a people who would, who would embody and announce and demonstrate the kingdom of God. And it meant that Jesus' demand was really, it would have been heard as radical and urgent in the ears of his first hearers. They would have felt that he was pressing a decision on them and that he was asking for a decisive break from life as people had known it, kind of a self-eclipse, an invitation to a new selfhood. And I guess I want to say this morning as we close that it, I just have a, a desire to make sure that Jesus' words don't go largely unheard and that they be taken serious. Because I know from my own life experience and from 40 years of being in ministry that on the other hand, the visible world daily bludgeons us with, with its things and noises and events, pinching and pulling and hammering away at our mind. But instead of shouting and shoving, Jesus never imposes himself on people. He's happy for them to think that if he walked into a room full of freshly minted PhDs from Wharton that they would have thought he really didn't know much about running anything. He's happy for people to think that. The spiritual world whispers at us gently. And God is easily explained away. He rarely responds with fire from heaven seems to go away rather meekly without much protest. But one day he will enforce his will. But for now, he cooperates with the desires and inclinations that make up our present character. Our present desires and our present loves. But if Jesus is smart, if he's right then whether you're a bishop or a seminary student or work at a seminary or work or live wherever you do, I think it just requires that we take on gently, gracefully, but seriously this idea from Matthew 5 and the message. Your kingdom subjects. Not first a denomination. Not first a school not first Protestant or Orthodox or Catholic, your kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards you. Amen. Let's have a moment just of quiet as the worship team comes back. And you can have a moment here, just you and the Spirit, uh, to do whatever business you need to do as you consider, is Jesus smart? And our own intentionality to follow him into the world as he described it, embodied it in his way of being, and demonstrated it in his acts of power.